Welcome back to the MHU podcast. This is episode five of season two of Can We Trust the Gospels? So all of season one, uh, which was uh, a class, but it's recorded and available for you to listen to, was about the Gospels. And so have the last four episodes of season two been about the Gospels. But today we are kind of shifting from the Gospels to the Book of Acts, which is uh, one of my favorite books of the Bible. Uh, and Patrick is going to lead us through uh, roughly the first third of the book today, pointing out some things that we can say about the historical evidence pertaining to whether the things recorded in Acts really happened. Patrick. All right. So, you might be wondering, in a class called Can We Trust the Gospels, why didn't we stop when the gospel stopped? Like, why are, why are we even talking about Acts? Um, so, there are, a couple, there are a couple reasons. I mean, for one, Justin said Acts is his favorite book. That's reason enough right there. You know, <laughs> we want to talk about Justin's favorite book. But there are reasons directly having to do with the Gospels that it's, it's really important to take a look at Acts. Um, so we started this course by noting how important it is that we know that the resurrection happened as a historical event. And in fact, Elaine really elaborated on that in our last episode. She brought up uh, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians, he says in verses 13 and 14, and then in, in uh, 18 and 19, he says, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Then those who have not fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're just gone. If in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are of all people most to be pitied. So this is just, the, mo the resurrection is the most important, it's the linchpin part of our faith. So, well, the, the book of Acts is a linchpin part of making the historical case for the resurrection. So it includes uh, the most elaborate account of the ascension, which is a linchpin part of making the case for the resurrection. But... The book of Acts as a whole is itself, you could think, a case for the resurrection. Well, why would we say that? Well, the book of, of Acts is an account of a bunch of people who profess to have seen the resurrected Christ and then go on to suffer for that profession miserably. They're beaten, they're mocked, they're uh, hounded by legal authorities, and in many cases, they're killed. Elaine uh, read last week the account of the stoning of Stephen and his saying to those who were stoning him that he looked into heaven and saw the resurrected Christ seated, Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. Well, if these people were making up the resurrection of Christ you really would not expect that they would take it to this degree, right? That, that they would have given up the, the ruse at some point when it, when it was getting them beaten or imprisoned, or especially when they were giving up their lives for it. So the degree to which they all went can be taken as a 
strong case for the historical reliability of the resurrection itself, or at least for uh, the fact that they all really believe that this happened, which is difficult to explain if it didn't happen. I guess one other uh, reason or, or way that the book of Acts bears on the Gospels or a Gospel is that, well, the book of Acts was written by the author of the book of Luke. We think that's Luke. Even uh, skeptical biblical scholars who don't think that um, the Apostle Luke wrote the book of Luke or the book of Acts will still agree that they were authored by the same person. So if the book of Acts is historically reliable as a document and you see the author of Acts getting things right, then this bears indirectly on the reliability of the Gospel of Luke as a, as a historical document. All right, so that really addresses, like, why are we getting, getting into Acts as a book? Why is that uh, important for trusting the Gospels? Because it's going to help us make the case that the resurrection really happened, that we can really trust this, and it's going to help us trust the Gospels uh, as an indirect uh, result. A lot of this information about you know, the usefulness of Acts and arguing for the resurrection comes from Tim and Lydia McGrew, and one point that Tim makes, I just like the way he put it, and this is related to Patrick's point about the, uh, the behavior of the disciples in Acts. Uh, he says the book of Acts is basically like the aftermath of the resurrection. It's roughly what you would expect to happen after the Gospels if what happened in the Gospels really happened. And so um, the historical evidence that the book of Acts is historically accurate, like that's really valuable for uh, making the case for the resurrection. All right, so one interesting feature of the book of Acts that it makes it sort of function in these ways that I just mentioned as well as it does is that there's a much greater proliferation of direct confirmation from external sources. So uh, we talked about this kind of evidence in the class uh, that we ran part one of Can We Trust the Gospels? So direct confirmation from external sources is, is a kind of evidence that you get for the historical reliability of a text. When sources outside of that text, or like the New Testament in this case, sources outside of the New Testament, explicitly and independently confirm a detail that's reported within the New Testament, so within the Gospels and Acts. So you get the Gospels and Acts saying that something happened, and then you get some external source like Josephus or Tacitus or somebody else saying that thing happened. And they're not basing their report on what the Gospels or Acts say. They're basing it on some independent source. Well, in Acts, we see a much greater number of, uh, the, of instances of these kinds of evidence, the direct evidence for what the Gospels and Acts, or for, for what's being reported in Acts than we saw in the Gospels. Why is that the case? Well, the Gospels are really reporting a series of events that occurs within a very small strip of land in the Mediterranean. Acts, on the other hand, the scope of events in the geography starts to really widen out, right? So, yeah, the, the Gospel begins to spread. The number of people who are involved really begins to grow. 
the apostles and disciples start to travel around and share the good news, and people start going every which way. And the, the as the Romans see it, the disease of Christianity starts to take hold. <laughs> and so there begins to be a lot more reason for... Uh, Roman historians or uh, or people in the broader region to notice what's going on. So that's that's the reason why this is the case. So the first thing I want to look at is I'm I'm going to just be looking today at the first third of the book of Acts, uh, basically up to Paul's conversion, and I want to look at a few instances of direct ex, uh, external confirmation or direct confirmation from external sources. So the first is. Uh, in uh, Acts chapter 2 at the end of Peter's sermon. So right after Peter preaches this awesome sermon, which uh, Lydia McGrew makes this great point that sometimes people will say 1 Corinthians is the first uh, attestation we have to the resurrection. But if Acts, the book, is historically reliable and it's reporting things accurately then Peter's sermon right here in Acts chapter 2 is the first attestation we have to the resurrection. He's telling people about the resurrection just days after it happened. And people are coming, uh, they're being added to the number of the church because of it. Well, in Acts 2.47, that's exactly what's going on, right? It says, um, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So it's this quick mention of, uh, of the process by which the church grows after the sermon of Peter and in the days following. So we see the first stages of the early and rapid growth of the church there. And that, along with its persecution, is described throughout Acts. Uh, not just in chapter 2, but in the book as a whole. Well, the rapid spread accompanied by persecution of the church is independently attested in Tacitus. In his annals, he writes this, Nero fastened the guilt for the fire of Rome and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius, the extreme penalty being, of course, crucifixion at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. So Tacitus is describing there, not only attesting to Jesus' crucifixion, uh, his judgment at the hands of Pontius Pilate, but the mischievous superstition, that is, the, <laughs> the spread of the church, in Judea and in Rome after the fact. In a similar vein, there's Pliny the Younger in a letter to Trajan saying of early Christianity that, quote, the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. But it seems possible to check and cure it. So th these are great because you get obvious, obviously... Not only is this direct external confirmation, but it's clearly not from a sympathetic source, right? These aren't uh, Christians uh, giving non-gospel reports of the, of the spread of the church. They're non-Christians telling you about the spread of the church. 
and they're very much not sympathetic to it. Planning feels like he was playing a game of pandemic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, mean, I think I feel like we talked about the contagion model of the spread of the church in our in our for, for, in the first part of the class. Uh, it's not uncommon to see it that way. Um, so he reports that those being accused of uh, Christians asserted that the sum, this is a quote, that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God. I, I really like this because it's a very early attestation that Christians held to the divinity of Christ. And to bind themselves by oath, not to some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not to falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. When this was over, it was their custom then to depart and to assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent food. And he describes his attempts to suppress this movement throughout the letter. Um, so he says, I have observed the following procedure in the case of those who are denounced to me as Christians. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I have no doubt that whether the nature of their creed, stubbornness, and inflexible obstinacy surely deserved to be punished, there were others possessed of the same folly, but because they were Roman citizens, I signed an order for them to be transferred to Rome. All right, so all this is to say that uh, the book of Acts gives us an, an account of the spread of the church, and this account is clearly not a fabrication. It's attested by other sources and sources who are not at all sympathetic to the church and, and who would even, you would think, have reason to want to suppress uh, knowledge of, of the spread of this contagion as they saw it so, that, so as not to encourage it. So let's go to another spot. Um, this is in Acts chapter 5. All right, so as part of this spread of the church, Peter and the other apostles are going around preaching in Jerusalem. And as you might have guessed, this does not make people very happy. Uh, they, they, make some, they frustrate some folks. So this is in Acts 5, 33 through 39. It says um, the, that Peter and the apostles have already sort of just refused to stop doing this. They say, we're witnesses to these things. We're not going to stop preaching, basically. And so, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. This is the, the Jewish leaders. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will, fall, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. 
All right, so this Gamaliel's a, he's a smart guy. He's looking back at the past and saying, look, either this is a man and these guys are going to fail like all the other upstarts, or it's of God and you don't want to be on the wrong side of that. Well, this is a case where we have direct external confirmation in a couple of ways. For one, we know about Gamaliel from an extra-biblical source. Um, he's known as an open-minded Pharisee. Uh, this is from Housen. Uh, that, that I have this information, which coheres perfectly with how he's depicted here in Acts 5, right? He's very open-minded, saying, like, look, 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 just don't be so rushing to, to, suppress. Su to suppress the upstarts. Moreover, Gamaliel and Theodos are both attested Jewish-Palestinian names this time. Uh, so we've mentioned Balcom multiple times, uh, giving us a nice record of the... Number or the names that were around in uh, this area of Palestine at the time in Jewish Palestine, and the frequency with which they were being used. So we know that these were names that were being used. Also, Gamaliel mentions Judas of Galilee. Well, this brief account of Judas of Galilee, Galilee, excuse me, is confirmed by Josephus in his Antiquities. So Gamaliel talks about. Uh, Judas of Galilee rising up as this upstart, and Josephus confirms that. Well, there is one potential source of disconfirmation um, or direct evidence against the reliability of this text from an external source. So uh, let me explain that. So there's a chronological kind of problem here. So Gamaliel talks about Theodos in this passage, right? He says, um, Before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. All who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. This seems to be referring to the revolt led by Theodos that, according to Josephus, occurred in 44 in the Common Era. But... From what we know, or from what we can tell, the ostensible context of the events of Acts, particularly Acts 5, occurred in the early 30s, 14 years before that. So Luke has Gamaliel referring to a revolt that at the time hadn't even happened yet. It was a decade or so away. All right, so what are we going to say about that? I looked through our notes and, and found that there are this is one of only two instances of apparent direct external disconfirmation, like a, where there's a direct external disconfirmation or a direct disconfirmation from an external source that we've been able to find in all of the four Gospels and Acts. Two times. In, in, in everything that we've, been, that we've looked through, there are two times in all of the, in the four Gospels and Acts that we've been able to locate where somebody says... Oh, uh, there's a there's a just a direct uh, disconfirmation direct. between what the gospel says or what Acts says, and what this other external source says. Is it Corinthians or something? Or what was the other one? <clears throat> the other one that comes in um, is yeah the infamous census problem that we discussed. Like we spent a whole like class <laughs> uh, class session discussing in our in our first in part one of this course. Yeah, part one, episode three. If you're interested in that, so. 
All right, so that's pretty. That's pretty interesting. That there, you you might expect that there would be a lot more of these direct external disconfirmations. Uh, there are some indirect. There are definitely a lot more cases where there's indirect uh, tension. Te- yeah, tension or something like that, and though and. It, that's something like Justin talked about a couple episodes ago. That's something actually you probably expect more um, in a historical report. Anyways, the, this kind of track record, though, weighs in favor of taking the Gospels and Acts as being accurately reported. And so then that tells me we should probably go looking for some kind of reason or some kind of answer for what's going on right here. Um, so... And actually, if I recall correctly, Craig Blomberg in one of his books notes that jo- there are more confirmed historical errors in Josephus than in Luke. <laughs> so, Great. actually, if we're just going on track record, <laughs> Luke wins. <laughs> well, that, and that leads into one possible harmonization right here. Namely that, well, we know that Josephus made his share of historical errors... Uh, and it could just be that he misreported the date of uh, Theodos's revolt. Mm-hmm. And maybe Luke has it right and Josephus has it wrong. Uh, so when you, have a, when you have a direct external disconfirmation from next... Uh, well, all that means is that there's a, there's a contradiction between what the scripture says and what some external source says in, in a case like this. Well, that means one of them must be wrong. Why assume that it has to be scripture? Uh, and and if, Blom, if Blomberg is right, then uh, Josephus is wrong much more frequently than Luke is, so there's maybe a reason to think that Luke is right and Josephus is wrong. I don't know if, if this is in your notes, um, but supposedly Josephus mentions that there are thousands of these sort of revolts happening. Yeah. Like, this is just a really common occurrence that there are people gathering followers and causing mayhem. Yeah. So the f- fact that there could be another Theodas who gathered together some people and caused some problems is, is really not that right. unreasonable. Yeah, well, that, I mean, honestly, it's sort of to Gamaliel's point, right? That, 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 there was that guy Theodas, there was that guy Judas. <laughs> the, like, these guys come up all the time, and they're, and they're always kind of, they get a few hundred men, and they get crushed. And if it's if it's of man, as it usually is, they get a few hundred people, they get crushed, and like they're just another revolt. So the suggestion, the other harmonization suggestion that Austin is offering here, is there could just be another Theodos who led another revolt. We know that Theodos is a name that's in use in the area. We know there are lots and lots of revolts, and many of them just get crushed without really any kind of historical note. Um, so yeah, those are two possible ways to understand what could be happening. Is maybe Josephus got the date of the one Theodos's revolt wrong, or maybe there's more than one Theodos's revolt, and Josephus is telling us about one, and Luke's telling us about another. Okay, so last bit of cool direct external confirmation uh, that I wanted to tell you about was, uh, or it comes from Acts chapter nine. So. This is uh, just coming from the chapter in which we hear about Paul's conversion. And what is Paul doing when he gets converted? He's heading over to Damascus to go mess up some Christians. Well, 
we have gotten some pretty cool information about Damascus as a historical site. Uh, some, some findings that have confirmed little details in that chapter in particular and in other chapters as well. So Damascus lies about 130 miles north of Jerusalem. And people have, some uh, archaeologists have, have excavated some structures there. So one of which is part of the wall through which Paul escapes after his conversion when he's trying to get the heck out of Damascus. That's in uh, Acts 9, 23 through 25. Um, it says, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And then they've also uh, been able to excavate, <coughs> excuse me, part of the street called Straight. This is from Acts 9, verse 11. The Lord said to Paul, Rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas. Look for a man named a man of Tarsus names, uh, this is, uh, I'm talking to Ananias, excuse me. Uh, at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. So, um, many Roman cities form a Hellenistic grid, and at least one of the longitudinal streets in the grid was made extra wide, and Straight Street in Damascus seems to have been this extra wide street. Alright, so that's just some really cool little details that confirm the account of what's going on in Paul's uh, sort of caper in Damascus, in Damascus right after his uh, conversion. All right, so we get a bunch of these cool kinds of uh, direct confirmation from external sources as we enter Acts, and I'm sure we'll see more of those in the episodes to come. One uh, other kind of evidence that is my personal favorite, we've talked about it before, is the criterion of embarrassment. Uh, it's sort of a funny name, but just as a reminder, the criterion of embarrassment is basically this. It says that when an author reports an event which is likely to have been embarrassing or otherwise uncomfortable for the author, for the author's audience, or for the author's community, the report is not likely the author's invention, nor is it likely based on, based on reports which the author would have swallowed uncritically. All right, so I'm going to just give a couple of examples of embarrassment in the book of Acts. One of them that's pointed out by Housen again, and he really admires the author of Acts for this, is the, is the case of Ananias and Sapphira. So let me read Acts 5 verses 1 through 10. But a, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and bought, brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last and a great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. 
But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of, your, of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. All right, so this is a case where the early church is recording some of its leading people, and it's, and it's recording very honestly the moral faults of those people. The corruption and uh, inconsistencies in the attitudes between some of the people who are selling all they have and some of the people who are trying to to cheat. If you were trying to make up a really picturesque view, picturesque view of the early church, you would just probably report only the good stuff, or maybe even make up some extra good stuff. You certainly wouldn't just. Uh, put in this picture of Ananias and Sapphira who were uh, yeah, who were dishonest and trying to cheat God. And I think sometimes the criterion of embarrassment tells on, it, t- it tells in favor of the historical reliability of the particular thing that you would be embarrassed about. And sometimes it kind of tells in favor of the author's credibility as a whole. Yeah. Yep. And this is one of those cases where I feel like it tells in favor of the author's credibility as a whole. You, it would be tempting to write a more propagandistic picture of the church that doesn't include any of the warts. So the fact that Luke includes this account just, I think, tells in favor of his willingness to just write truthfully, warts and all. It also seems to me that it, um, it brings up some confusing theological concepts that if I were trying to make Jesus easier to understand, I just would leave this out as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. If you want, if you just wanted like gentle Jesus, meek and mild. <laughs> yeah. Full yeah. of grace. Right. Yeah. Totally. It kind of fits in there with the tough sayings of Jesus. Yeah. Right, where it's odd and kind of offensive and doesn't fit that picture of the warm, welcoming Jesus mm-hmm. that I think uh, people like to grasp onto. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously we're not going to address all, like the theology of the passage, but I think that's here. But I think that's exactly right. It's a it's a harder account to understand, and yeah, it would be so tempting to just say, oh, I'm not going to mention that. I'm not going to mention that. That could <laughs> that could get people confused or something like that. Yeah. All right. So one other uh, instance of embarrassment. Uh, so this comes in the beginning of Acts chapter six, right in the next chapter says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that is like the Greeks, arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. 
and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. All right, so there's some respects in which you would want to tell that story because it tells you about uh, the founding of this first Christian ministry. But there's some respects in which it would be tempting not to tell about this story. Why? Because the first Christian ministry arose out of a dispute among some widows and about how some of them were being neglected by the leadership in the, in the daily distribution. At least if you were going to tell about it, you might have been tempted to neglect the fact of, of where this ministry came from, like how it arose. You might have wanted to say just, oh, and then around this time, they appointed some of these guys to, to uh, you know, help with the daily distribution and not mention the fact that before this, this appointment, the Hellenist, uh, the Greek widows were being neglected. Well, this is just another case where it's very clear that Luke is not shying away from the imperfections in, in even the leadership of the early church. All right. So I want to finish today by looking at some undesigned coincidences that we find in the, the beginning portion of Acts. So just to remind you, an undesigned coincidence is a sort of subtle explanatory connection between passing details. So usually a kind of offhanded comment or uh, an, uh, an account in one part of a, a book or one part of another book. And these passing details give the impression of being accidental rather than contrived. Really the explanatory connection between them gives the, account of, it gives the impression of being accidental. These kinds of connections are much more likely to appear in accurate reporting than in any invented material. Uh, in in a fiction or in a fictionalized account, you tend to get much more clear foreshadowing and clear connections between details rather than these sorts of undesigned coincidences. All right, so I have four of them to share with you today. So there's a really cool undesigned, well, I don't know if there's any uncool undesigned coincidences, but <laughs> <laughs> there's a pretty cool one here uh, it, that comes between John 10, 23 and several places in Acts. So the three, there are three verses in Acts. Acts 2, 46, Acts 3, 11, and Acts 5, 12. That all mention, all mention the Christians uh, in Acts using this place called Solomon's Porch as a meeting place. It's this, uh, there's really this, like, this uh, sort of, coherence between these different passages that they they keep coming back to Solomon's porch and, and it's like a spot that, where they keep meeting up with each other. And well why do they why do they keep going to Solomon's porch? Well John ten twenty three uh, tells us that Jesus once preached a sermon there. And this functions as a really nice little undesigned coincidence. Why would they want to use Solomon's porch as a meeting place? Well it could be like a nice nostalgic spot where they remembered Jesus once preaching and teaching. And it's a spot where they can go and uh, be together in remembrance of him. I mean, it, it seems that that's the, exactly how they uh, organize themselves. Mm -hmm. It certainly gives the appearance of uh, being undesigned. It was that Colin Beamer who... 
highlighted that one. Yes, it is humor. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's right. It might be worth mentioning. There's a really, really excellent book. Uh, this one's more of an academic book. It's not as accessible, but a book by Colin Hemer called uh, the what is it called? Oh, the Book of Acts in the setting of Hellenistic history. It's it's really excellent. It goes through the Book of Acts and just talks about the different details that are confirmed mostly by external evidence. Awesome. Yeah, so that relates to what we were talking about earlier. How Acts is so so much more well confirmed by external evidence than yeah than the Gospels. Indeed. Because of its setting. So, um, let me take us right back to what I was just talking about uh, with the situation with the dispute among the widows in Acts chapter 6. So there's a really cool little undesigned coincidence here with 1 Timothy chapter 5. So you've got that, um, that dispute amongst the widows and... The way they resolve it is by beginning this uh, this certain kind of ministry. Well, in First Timothy chapter five verses nine through ten, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, "Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than sixty years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality." has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Well, a roster of widows is presumably the same one that was instituted right in Acts chapter 6, and it's mentioned in 1 Timothy. But in 1 Timothy, he just tells him, well, enroll a widow if these conditions hold. But he doesn't mention, like, uh, where the roster of widows came from, like what, what that concept, uh, he just employs the concept knowing that Timothy knows what he's talking about. I mean, here he's writing much later on, presumably. And so the story in Acts chapter 6 helps to explain what Paul is talking about in First Timothy in a way that is very clearly undesigned. And it's a very subtle, like, very easy to miss connection. Most of us probably read past that part of First Timothy and just, it just flies right over our heads. It's also an interesting consistency between Paul writing later in Ephesus, to Timothy, who is now in Ephesus, and this thing which is taking place in Jerusalem. And here they're putting in place a, a sort of institutional thing to take care of widows. Uh, and we see that institutional thing seems to still be in place in Ephesus yeah. now, 20 years later or whatever. Right. Um, so that, you know, that's, that, that just shows content, like structural continuities in the early church over this time period, um, which would give more evidence to ideological continuities and other, potentially other continuities in the structure and uh, beliefs of the church over this 20-year period. Yeah. Yeah. So the so it shows you that the ministry that they're starting in Acts 6 is not a thing that lasted for five weeks and petered out. Mm. Uh, I've got two more undesigned coincidences to share. This next one might be my favorite one. So this comes from uh, Stephen's uh, sermon at his stoning. This is in Acts chapter 7. Uh, and Elaine kind of 
walked us through talking about some of this in our episode last time. But um, so in verse 48, Stephen says while he's uh, giving his very defiant sermon that the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. This is a, a line that he uses. Well, we know that Paul is, is present there for the sermon. There's this sort of um, almost like macabre line at, in Acts 8, uh, verse 1. It says that Saul approved of his execution. He's just standing there watching over it, kind of presiding over the stoning. Well, in Acts chapter 17, verse 24... Way down the line, Paul employs exactly the same line as Stephen. Here he's addressing the Areopagus, and he, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So this is a very, very subtle kind of point where... You would easily, you know, you could read the book of Acts in a day uh, and so, so that you're reading these chapters very close to, together and totally miss it. But it's the exact line that Paul heard from Stephen when he was sitting there at his stoning. And it seems to be very plausible that Paul picked up the line from Stephen. You might even think he's making a, a little homage right there. Yeah, this particular undesigned coincidence we got from Colin Hemer again, because he has a section in that book that I mentioned earlier where he talks about, he calls them latent consistencies within the narrative of Acts. And some people uh, take these to be like a type of undesigned coincidence where you have like, you know, a couple of details that fit together in a really subtle way, but they're in this case, they're from the same author in the same book, and yet it still looks unplanned because of how subtle it is. Mm -hmm. So last undesigned coincidence I was going to mention comes from the account of Paul's conversion. Um, so in Galatians chapter 1, verses 17, Paul, he's talking about his conversion, he says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. That returned again to Damascus line is, if all you had was Galatians, a little bit confusing because he hasn't mentioned anything about being in Damascus before in Galatians. But in the account of Paul's conversion in Acts 9, uh, we get a mention of him, well not a mention, we get his account of him going to Damascus. So in chapter 9 verse 8, it says that after his encounter with Jesus, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And then we get uh, a, sh a short, uh, maybe a 15 or 20 verse account of his time in Damascus. So the Acts 9 account of Paul's conversion explains the account uh, or the, the comment that he makes in Galatians verse 1 or chapter 1 verse 17, excuse me, about going away into Arabia and returning again to Damascus. 
it's a small point, but it's just one more case where there, uh, there's this clear consistency between the, the texts, but in a way that seems totally undesigned and that you couldn't really make up, especially given the difference in authorship between the two texts. All right, so once again, thank you for joining us on the Mercy House University podcast. And uh, once again, also, if you have any questions that you want us to talk about on the podcast, or if you just want to email us and have us email you back with a question that you have, please email us at mercyhouseu at gmail.com. That's mercyhouse, the letter U, at gmail.com. And our event... Uh, uh, during Holy Week on April 18th is coming up. So mark that in your calendar. There's going to be a lot of stuff going on at Mercy House during Holy Week, but we'll be having a training event just focusing on how do you share the truth of the resurrection with people around you? How do you present this evidence? How do you have those conversations? And how do you incorporate it into your life here and now? 